Okay, we are, uh, I, I'm trying to balance this thing with monumental love and, and the vacation Bible school. And the, the, the week was so interesting because uh, it, it dovetails into, I'll, I'll, I'll streamline it into what Paul is doing, in thinking about this whole idea of glory and thinking about uh, a monumental, how God is really awesome. And so all the way through the week, the kids have been singing about awesome, awesome, awesome God. And yet, there's something about this awesome God that we want to shut up and be silent and not tell anybody about. If he is so awesome, and when the, and the scriptures say that those who understand how awesome he is, he, they display strength and uh, take action. But the idea that there's a God, there is a God there, and he is not silent, and he is at work, and we don't know him. Therefore, the idea that we as a church, as an unusual group of people, you are here by an invisible hand that you don't realize that God is doing work behind the scenes. They began long ago. And that God, we're here to worship in Christ. And so the idea of beholding glory, and we sing all the time. What songs come to mind when you think about glory? We sang one this morning. Uh, this is from Marilyn Wickham's house. Uh, it's a little devotional. This is an 1849 hymn, and this small. There, there are 1146 hymns in this thing, and the first song in this is uh, "Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing." There have been Christians throughout centuries who have been worshiping Christ and and calling on glory. We we say, "Glory be to the Father." The doxology. Uh, 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 to God be the glory. And so often we talk about this as a religious word, and if you, if you were to stop and ask yourself, what does glory mean? Well, you'd be hard-pressed unless you've thought about this, and yet Paul uses this term so often in the New Testament because Paul understood something about the Lord that we don't. And as you listen today, uh, as, you, as we go through this material, uh, there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of questions, a lot of things come up that will stimulate you to think. But I want you to ask, as you listen to it, uh, pay special attention to anything that catches your eye or God impresses upon you, a verse of scripture or a story or illustration or point that God is still trying to get your attention. Because he would often say, he who has ears, let him hear because not everybody's interested in the glory of God. Not everybody cares about what God is doing on earth for Pete's sake or for heaven's sake. And so as we get into this, we are different because as we get into the book of, of, of Corinthians and we think about the Greek culture, there's a couple of things back that Paul understood as he's going into that pagan culture that the Corinthians understood uh, that there's always tension in their culture. There was a, it was a, a culture that was still developing, but there were always wars. There were times of peace, but there were times of wars. And Ares is the Greek god of war. Mars is the Roman god. But as you get back into the Corinthian mindset, you understand that these were the, the hoplite citizen soldiers who had to fight. And hoplite just means they're equipped. They have spears and shields. And if you were to go into one of their homes, no doubt, instead of having a gun case and storage, you'd have 
dad's shield, dad's spears, dad's knives over on the table somewhere. They were local militia, as it were. If you're called on to fight at any point in time, these were citizen soldiers, compulsory military service between 18 and 20, but up to 60 if there was war and conflict, you were expected to get involved in the battle. Uh, there would be rivals between city-states or battles at sea. There would be armed bands led by some lone warrior leader, political terrorists like the zealots who would stab people in the streets. Matthew would have been killed as a tax collector because Simon the zealot wanted to overthrow the Roman occupation. But here's the point. Greek had, Greece had 12 major generals. The famous one is... Of course, Alexander the Great, who, I don't know if he was the one who said that. I'm, I'm trying to trace, trace down my source. But he said, show me your gods, and I'll show you your men. Show me your gods, and I will show you your men. Because there's nothing more important about you, nothing more important. The number one thing important, as A.W. Tozer would say, is what you conceive of God being directly affects how you see your being. And so show me your guides and I'll show you your men. But there was a, a pastor who wrote a New Testament translation of, uh, called J.B. Phillips, the New Testament. If you've read anything, it's a wonderful translation, a paraphrase. But he says, your God is too small. And he wrote this book in particular to address the skeptics to understand that the God that we promote or talk about for a lot of people in the world is totally irrelevant. That that God is too small, is not big enough for our modern needs. In a world where our experience has grown in a myriad directions and the confusion because of all these mixed horizons, they've been expanded by this bewilderment of entertainment and information the need is to really refocus on this monumental God because we've lost God. Even some people have said God is dead or God is, um, uh, God is what was the, uh, um, if you want to find God, you have to Google God. Now you go to the internet and find out information about God. But it's the, uh, it's the mutation of the Gospels taking place. Well, in contrast to that, people like Paul throughout all centuries, especially David, I'm going to call on Psalm 34, he would say, I will extol the Lord at all times. The praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Now, why on earth would some man like David have that word where so many men wouldn't have that song, wouldn't have that disposition. The New American Standard says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Magnify with me and let us exalt and rejoice and lift up that name of Christ. David would go on to say, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Really? Really? David had a personal experience where God touched him and he relieved him from the enemies and burdens. And so he would say, 
uh, I sought the Lord and he answered me. The fact that God was personally involved in touching David's life and leading David's life. For those who want to have their lives influenced by the gospel, the invitation is that there is a personal experience with a personal God who does speak and guide you in the way which he sees you can go. He is alive. You are not in your own universe. You are in God's universe. And so, as Paul would say, as I read in my quiet time this week, uh, it, was, it was amazing. All these things are coming. For this reason, Paul would pray for the Colossians, as he would pray for the Thessalonians, Galatians, and the Corinthians, and everybody else. Since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now get that verse. They didn't have what Paul was praying for. There was a deficiency, and prayer is one of the means by which you reconnect to the resources that are supernal. So you told me you said, where do I know? But the idea, he said, be filled, which means that there's a hole, there's an emptiness. But be filled with what? The one, the knowledge of his will. This is information. This is basic data. You got to know the plan. But the knowledge, a lot of people have knowledge about God. But it says not just filled with knowledge, but I want you to feel, be filled with spiritual wisdom. And that wisdom means, as Paul would say, that God's going to give you insight, enlightenment. You will know who he is and you know why he does what he does. But that's not enough. To know wisdom is is one thing, but to have the insight to know how to apply that wisdom in the particulars of life. So Paul was saying, I'm praying that you'd have the knowledge, I pray that you have the wisdom, I pray that you have the insight that you would walk in this way, this glory, and be filled with it. I want you to know, as Paul wants you to know, our God is big enough for every battle. He has gone through every every battle that you've gone through. And therefore, Paul would say that the reason I would like to have you be filled with this knowledge, wisdom, and insight is so that your life, your walk, your reputation, your experience, your perspective, your whole way of being in the world would be filled with the knowledge of God to please him in all respects. You've got to be kidding If you saw the face of Christ looking at you right now, and you knew that Christ was pleased with you, smiling, inviting, accepting, what would your heart do? If God would embrace you and say, you're mine. I know exactly where you are. I know why you fight me. I know why you resist me, and I still want you. And he says so with a calm invitation. If you're heavy burdened, come unto me and learn from me. Our gentle Savior is a very powerful Savior. But to know that you can please him, and that smile, that well done, that touch that says, he knows me. He knows my heart. And he knows I want to do the will of God.
But if you don't know the affirmation that grace and mercy and compassion that comes from God who speaks to you personally when you've messed up, when you don't have it together, he does. And he's not looking about your performance. He is looking to enjoy you. This is a different kind of God that Paul was talking about. But to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the experience and that knowledge of how God works. And how he works, it says, he strengthens you with all power. According to, now here it is again, there's the adjective, glorious might. That might that is so honoring to not only God, but honors me, the strength that makes me become more than I am. For the attaining of steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who is qualified. Well, this is our Apostle Paul. And here's what Paul is doing with the Corinthians. He is trying to get the Corinthians to understand it's not about the rules. It's not about what you eat. It's not about what you drink. We've seen that. It's not about the failures of of incest and immorality. We've we've learned about, we've gone through chapters 6 to 10, and he's it's a complex in and out, but if you don't listen to what is underneath, Paul is saying, here is the point. Your point is this, that God is at work to make a people, a community that's been redeemed and restored and renewed. It's a kingdom community that you live as though you practice heaven. That's a different mindset. It makes us peculiar, oddballs, because we think from above, not from below. Paul understood that Christ wanted to create a community in the church that was a new kind of humanity, a restored humanity that doesn't rely on the flesh and doesn't rely on culture. And so Paul would say, as Constantine Campbell would talk about, that Paul's motivation was this glory his vision for you and for me, his vision for every individual to be lifted back up into the arms of Christ in a way that people would feel like, this is me. This is where I need to be. This is where I belong. This is where I want to be. And you have that heart restored. Restore me to the joy of my salvation, as David would pray. But to whom God will to make known. God wants to make his will known. He wants to make himself known. What are the riches of his glory? There's the word again. Our awesome, monumental, glorious God has a mystery. And it's for every single person he's created out of a womb is walking on the face of the earth. And he dies with a hope. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we can present every man complete in Christ. And therefore, every man, every woman, every child around the world through all all time could say, if they could say, I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and he answered me. He delivered me. He touched me. He changed me. He rewrote my life. And those who look to him sound different, look different, live different. And their faces are never covered with regret or shame. 
Well, this whole concept of Paul trying to get right in chapter 10, but I'm going to tell you the secret coming up. He's going to go into a community of glory that the people in the church were built and brought into a brand new understanding. And we don't do this very well, but we need to learn how to do it better. So the question is, what is glory? What is glory? What do you you understand when you think about glory? And what is God's glory? And what is our problem with glory? I'll go real quickly through these, but just to know that God wants to restore us to glory. Well, the English and the Scots didn't get along for a long time until they settled down. And the Christians in England were influenced by the Scottish believers. And so they got together. And in their council, they came up with a shorter confession, Westminster Confession of Faith. And it was a list of, it's a catechism of, of teaching that people would be educated in the church. And the first question is, what is the chief end of man? You know this answer, don't you? You know this answer, don't you? There's two purposes. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Those two themes, if they were the pillars of your, of your Christian experience, let me ask you, do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy God? That'd be a rare answer. Somebody says, I love God. I love Christ. You just don't hear that in our day and age. We talk about church. We talk about Christian experiences or conferences or books. But to hear somebody say, you know, I love Christ with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. You just can't wait to get to know him better. To enjoy him. Do you enjoy? And then the question about glorify. What does it mean on earth to glorify? Well, I do good works, and the good works glorify God, so other people see what I do. But it's not just what I do, it's how I relate to him. And so Paul would say, here's the summary for the Corinthians. Whatever you do, whether it's sitting down with the friends to eat meat sacrificed to idols or if you're considering about going to lawsuits or if you're concerned about what other particulars, Paul underlines this whole theme of the differences of opinion of just be sensitive to the glory of God. What would Jesus do? And if that's your bottom line, that you're going to do that which is loving, that which is right, that which is good for the purpose of edifying others, that's what Paul is thinking about. So the question is, to have that clarified, you may have that same question. Well, what, is it, what does it mean to be glory, glorified? What is the glory? Well, Webster says it this way. It's praise, honor, and distinction. Worshipful praise, honor, and thanksgiving. Something that secures praise or renown. A distinguished quality. That's a good definition as far as Webster's go. But it misses one point that the Hebrews understood and for the Hebrews, the word is kabod. The noun is kabod. Kabod is the verb, but to glorify. But this word has something Merriam-Webster missed. And it was the word weight. Kabod means weight. It's the weight. It means substance. Something solid that you can and you're in the presence of some weighty experience, it's like you're 
all your senses are brought in to bear, to, to experience what's going on. It's like meeting Aslan for the first time, that lion and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. When you come across this lion, you've got a weighty situation. It's terrifying. And so some of this thing of glory, don't think he's just the man upstairs and chew tobacco, chew tobacco, chew tobacco, spit. You should be terrified. He's a holy God, honorable in every single way. And therefore, there's part of this thing that there's reverence and a sacredness at the same time, there's a playfulness, a dance, a rejoicing, a sense of attention that's built on love and it's being pulled into something that you normally aren't pulled into. The idea that there's a weightiness. And so with that weight in Psalm 115, verse 1, is that my Bible? Yeah. Uh, it says this. When, when uh, David would write... Not to my name, yeah, not to my name, but to your name, O oh God, be the glory. And so we tend to think, is that the right one? Um, yeah, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, because your loving kindness and because of your truth. The idea is we're not the focus. We're not the focus. And if you get into... If you ever have a chance to meet these, quote, I know, very rarely to meet a theologian, they, talk, they must talk with sacred spiritual voices. But these theologians, and they get around and they talk about these deep concepts of God. When they talk about the glory of God, they talk about two things. They talk about the intrinsic glory, that there's something in and of himself, in the character of God, it's incommunicable. Things that you won't understand because there's something about God that is so other. It's not human. And there's the call to say, I understand that he's the creator and I'm a creature. And there's no equality there. But the idea that he is, he is in and of himself glorious is an intrinsic glory that once you begin to realize who he is, there's something about the beauty of Christ that will draw you into it, if you see it. If you don't see it, you won't be drawn into it. But there's something magnetic about this grace and this goodness, about the calmness, about the mercy, about the compassion. And you see, everything that God does is one part of his being. And the other part of it is our response to that, the Response to that glory is the doxology, the doxa. It's our response. It's how we ascribe and we attribute, oh, you are worthy. And therefore, when you talk about glory, you're talking about weight and worthiness that leads you into worship. So here at the core, at this meaning, is you have this root of desire. I desire what, who God is. And I desire all that he says because he is giving everything to us. Let's look at this real quickly. In Paul, again, it's Paul. Paul understood this. And Paul, you would read over these, 
these prepositions if you're a speed reader. But Paul would say it's uh, from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Those three, those three little words, phrases, it is the summation of the whole entire creation and redemption process. He is the source. He is not only the creator, but before he created, he, he had this plan, and this plan was his idea. Everything that you see in, on earth is his idea because he is the creator, the architect, the source of all things. And through him, he's the means he makes things come to pass. He begins the work, and he then sends a spirit to complete the work. And he is the end. Is to him be the glory. From him, through him, to him. And therefore, as you understand that when Paul would say, there's an intrinsic glory. And so when Jesus comes to earth, when heaven came down and glory filled the world, earth as well as our souls it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his what glory what would it have been like for you to see christ and when you see christ do you think about glory walking in israel you would meet christ you would stop you would stop you would wonder, you'd say, who is this man? By what authority? The way he teaches, the way he touches, the way he, there's something about Christ. We beheld his glory, full of grace and full of truth. And then Hebrews would say, he is the radiance of the God who sent him. The exact representation. And again, there's this idea of glory. But the idea of ascribing glory is, is our response to when you see this. Look at Psalm 29. In Psalm 29, again, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you'll pick up this theme that they're looking for, they're looking for, because they're Jewish, and they, they tend to want to see things. And so in Psalm 29, David says, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name, and worship the Lord in holy array. And that's what from him, to him, uh, through him, and to him is. Not to us, but to your name give glory. Well, we want to take the glory. We want to take the glory. Bill Gaither had this problem. Bill Gaither, at one of the concerts, uh, after his singing, he stood up, uh, and the audience stood and applauded, and they kept applauding, and they kept applauding because they were so mesmerized by their music that his wife, Gloria, and Bill, they thanked him. And when Bill sat down, there was a tug in his spirit. And the message was, you do not well. This isn't good. And he thought of Psalm 115. And he realized the distinction between encouragement and glory. He was getting glory from men. And the people were connecting with him and thanking him for his gifts. And, oh, I appreciate you and glory and what you're doing. But they weren't connecting with God. 
So he immediately sat down at the piano and began to sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. Humbly, softly, and immediately the audience recognized their error. And they began to sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. And the connection was back to Christ. Not on men, not to please men, not to celebrate or exalt men. But Bill Gaither learned that day. He would, later on that evening, make a decision that every concert he would do, he would end their song to make sure the connection and the glory went to Jesus. And so he wrote a song. The title of that song is, Let's Just Praise the Lord. Let's Just Praise the Lord. But he knew how to keep it focused. We have trouble with that. Well, just for the sake of time, I want to give you this last story that I'll continue next week. There was a man uh, named Joshua Bell. Anybody know that name, Joshua Bell? I didn't know the name. It was a special blessing this week. Joshua Bell was actually from Indiana. He's uh, from Indiana, Bloomington, from Indiana University. He is a child prodigy of... Uh, in violin. Uh, he has a $4 million Stradivarius. At 12 years old, he began, 14 years old, he was with the Boston Pop. They took, they took, uh, they did an experiment. This child prodigy who played for the National Symphony in a number of places, uh, but in Washington, D.C., he sat down next to a trash can, put jeans and a T-shirt and a Nationals cap on. He started playing in the subway. As he was playing, this $4 million violin, uh, thousands of people went by. As they went by, they had members to go ask people if there was something unusual that happened in the subway that day. And what would happen is that they would say, well, nothing. And then one guy stopped as he got to the top of the escalator. Jacob was his name. He stopped. He totally stopped, found the source of the music, went over and sat, or stood next to uh, Joshua Bell and listened for nine minutes. Nine minutes he was carried away in this violin music. The idea that Joshua would put out his little violin case, and he got $32.17 of people putting in money. He is a world-renowned violinist. And the point was, people didn't recognize the glory. And once you exchange the glory of God for the glory of men, you'll never see or hear or know or understand what you were built for. We were built for glory. And that's what Paul is going to say, that the hope of glory for the Corinthians, the hope of glory for you, is for you to be in that connection with Christ so that that transforming power of the Spirit will glorify your heart and lift you up, that you too would not just be a warrior fighting a battle. You'd be a warrior fighting the Lord's battle, and the Lord would be fighting your battle with you. As you get into the Corinthians, as you'll see something really interesting. There are people who know the Lord very well, and it leads to worship. There are people who don't know the Lord's glory very well, and they have little worship. 
But Paul's commitment is we want to proclaim him so that the hope of glory would become strengthened, that you would have knowledge, that you'd have wisdom, and that you'd have insight. Well, the good news is Christ wants you to show you his glory. And so I would invite you this afternoon or sometime that in all the situations that we could have gone through, whether it's a tree stump or accidents or cancer, understand that God is sovereignly in control and he knows what he's doing. If you need wisdom, you need insight, ask. David said, he delivered me from all my fears. He'll lead you in the way which you shall go. Well, let me close here. And uh, close. Father, thank you that you are more than we can conceive, that we would ascribe to you glory because you are so worthy of glory. So, Father, take these words, stimulate us to think about what you're doing in those people that you call to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.